That brings us to Jesus the King. After 400 years, around 6 BC, the silence was finally broken. When Yahweh sent an angel to Zechariah, announcing the birth of the prophet John, who would announce and anoint the coming king. Then Yahweh sent an angel to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, the king, who would deliver his covenant people. Then the heavenly army of Yahweh announced to a group of shepherds that awaited the Savior and King Christ had finally been born to them. After 400 years, God all of a sudden, bam, shows up. And he brings an angel to Zechariah and says, you're going to give birth to a son who will prepare the way for the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that you thought would come after the return from exile, but did not. But now I'm telling you today, a Savior is born to you. And then he sends word to Mary saying, this Messiah is going to be birthed through you. Then when this Messiah is finally born, he comes to the shepherds. The shepherds were the outcasts. Now, people depended upon shepherds. They knew that there was a need for shepherds because shepherds took care of sheep was a staple to Israel. Remember, the shepherds were not only sheep, were not necessary for food and the wool that provide clothing, but they were also absolutely necessary for the sacrifice of the atonement of sin. Yet, despite this, shepherds were often looked down as the most lowliest of lowliest people, the outcasts, the least likely people that God would ever come to just like the foreigners, the Gentiles. In fact, the Pharisees had a prayer that, thank God that I am not a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. And the dog wasn't just a literal dog, but it was the subclass people, dogs. This is who Jesus comes to. Now, we often have this picture of these angels showing up. The angel comes and says, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Well, he actually doesn't say that. He says, peace on earth and goodwill to those whom God is going to bless. The covenant people of God. Only those who come to him in faith. And then we have this picture of all these angels sitting on clouds and playing harps and singing glory, glory, and all this kind of stuff. But that is not at all what Luke says. Luke says, the heavenly hosts, that word hosts is a military regiment is used all throughout the First Testament as the army, the heavenly army of God. The divine counsel of God is also an army of God. And it says that they came forth and they began to proclaim, not sing. Some of your transitions say sing, but that's not good. They began to proclaim. What you should picture is that Jesus the King has finally arrived and his army has marched up before their king. And in military formation, ready to do war, they do a military cadence. And they proclaim that Christ is king. That word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And for them, that word Christ means king, who will come and crush the foreign oppressors establish the new Jerusalem and rule over the earth as all evil is destroyed and the Israel is given the blessings of God with no sin and no evil in the world. That's what everybody's thinking as these angels keep appearing before everybody. The Messiah has finally come. 
and he will destroy evil, and he will establish the new Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had the right to represent humanity and Israel as their king because he was the true descendant of Adam, Abraham, Judah, and David. This is seen in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3. These genealogies are important because one of them ends the Jesus, the Son of God. What these genealogies are showing is that you can trace Jesus all the way back to Adam, which means he is a descendant of Adam, which means he has the right to do what Adam was intended to do. Well, technically you say, well, that gives us all the right. Yes. So notice how throughout time God began to narrow it down. God chose Adam, who was the father of all humans. So all humans are the chosen people of God. But he disinherited them in Genesis chapter 11. So then he came to a very specific human by the name of Abraham. And only through Abraham would he redeem the world. So the genealogies show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. But he narrowed the 12 12 tribes that came from Abraham through his grandson Jacob down to a more specific tribe in Genesis 49 and said from him will come the scepter, the king. Then he narrowed that tribe down even more specifically in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when he said from David will come the Messiah. And so Jesus shows through that genealogy that I am the true human. I am the true descendant of Abraham, the covenant people of God. I am the true tribe of Judah, the king. And I am the true David, the king after God's own heart. Yet this Jesus was more than just a human king. He was God himself in human body, as seen in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was fully God, and the Word was God in the beginning. And all things were created by him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created So word was in the beginning with God and was God and everything was created with him. So this word is what created, brought all things into existence when God spoke. This word is what subdued the chaos. This word is what brought the light into the world and drove the darkness away. This word is what formed and filled everything. In him was life and life was the light of mankind the light that God spoke in the beginning. And the light shines on the darkness. Darkness is symbolic of evil and chaos, humanity. But the darkness has not mastered it. A man came, which means the darkness could not control the light and make it do what they wanted to. A man came sent from God, whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him, everyone. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created by him. But the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, the Jews, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, all the nations, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children, children not born by human parents or by desire or by husband's decisions, but by God, not biological children of Abraham, not people that you choose to give birth, but the children of God that God chooses to give birth no matter where they come from. Now the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Your translations say dwelled, 
But in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, it's tabernacled. He saw, we saw his glory and the glory of the one only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. This word, who is God and created all things, became flesh, human. Daniel chapter 7. And he tabernacled, dwelled with us. Just like the tabernacle was a simple tent that was put right on the ground in the soil, right in the midst of all of Israel in the wilderness. So this God became human, put on the soil on his godness, and stood in the soil with all the Jews and dwelt and lived with them. This is what was predicted. This is what Jesus became. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So in the past, God spoke through visions, the prophets, and the divine counsel of Yahweh, angels. Yet in these last days, He's spoken to us in a son. Not just any son, not just a prophet, not a son of man, not a son of God, but the Son of God whom he appointed heir of all things. See, remember the sons of gods are any supernatural being that are connected to Yahweh and the divine counsel. But now what the author of Hebrews is going to say, today he spoke to us through his son of God. And you're like, he's always spoken to us through sons of God. The angels, they've always come and spoke to us. Even demons, false sons of gods, have come and spoke to people through the false prophets. But the author of Hebrews goes on and says, this is a different kind of son of God. He is the appointed heir of all things. He's not a son of God that just rules because God gave him a delegation. He is the heir of all of God's authority, power, sovereignty, and honor and glory. Daniel 7. Through him, all the world was created. Only God did this in Genesis. John chapter 1. The son is the radiance of his glory, meaning that he is the glory of God. And the glory of God is God. And the representation of its essence. Or some of your Bibles say the exact copy. Meaning this is the image that's imprinted on a coin. And looks exactly like the thing that implanted or printed it. Which means it is the same thing. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Only Yahweh sustains life and keeps it going. And so when he accomplished the cleansing of sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus he became so far better than the angels as he inherited a name superior to theirs. So he says thus, because of all this, because he is a son of God unlike any other son of God. Remember we call them angels because he is God himself and the world was created through him. But he also did what no other son of God did. He actually died for the sins of the world, and came back to the life, conquering the grave and death. No other son of God, angel, had ever done that. Therefore, he is made superior, superior, shows himself to be superior and inherits a superior kingdom than any son of God or angel ever has. He is the son of God, just like he is the Messiah. Not a, but the Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Many of your translations say, though he exists in the form of God, did not see equality with God, 
did not seek godhood as something to exploit. Many translations say did not see as something to grasp. And that's always been confusing to me growing up. Wait a minute. He is God, but he did not try to grasp godhood? What does that mean? And a lot of people have used that translation to argue that Jesus is God. See, he's not trying to grasp godhood. So if he's not trying to grasp it, then he's not God. But what they conveniently ignore is the fact that it says he is God right before that in the same sentence. That's because the Greek is actually saying he did not see his godhood as something to exploit. It does not mean that he did not see Godhood as something that he could grasp, like he couldn't get it or he didn't try to take it. It means that he was God, but he did not exploit his Godhood over people. He did not come as God to rule over us and to oppress us and dominate us like everybody else with power has ever done in the world. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is a God, the God, who chose to surrender and die for us. Priest. But as a result of that, God exalted him and made him king again over all things. He made him God. Not that he ceased to be God, but he gave him all of his Godhood back. And gave him the name that was above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under earth. Daniel chapter 7. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He is the God-man who is God on the throne and created all the world and sustained everything, but then gave up the right to use his godhood whenever he wanted and to exploit us and rule over us so that he could die for us as our lamb and our high priest. Therefore, God restored to him the right to have the authority over all things, because he did what nobody else could do. He created all things, and he died for all things, and he came back from the grave for all things. This is why he has the right to be king, because he is God king, and he works and acts like the God king. Therefore, he has the right to be the God king, the God man. And this is what these gospels begin with, that idea, that concept. Since history had shown that no human had been able to be the true image of God and fulfill the promises of Yahweh, the promised king would also have to be God, so they could do what humans could not, what no human could do remove evil and sin, circumcise the hearts of humanity, and restore the Garden of Eden on earth. But before he could truly become king, he would have to be humanity's prophet and priest. Why did Jesus have to be the God man? Well, he had to be God because he had to do what no humans could do. No human has ever been able to live a perfect, sinless life. That's what First Testament has shown. So if no human can do what Adam and Eve were intended to do, then there will be no hope for humanity to be what Adam and Eve were intended to be in a relationship with God, expand the garden. Therefore, Jesus had to become God Jesus had to be God in order to do what no human could do. Actually live a sinless, non-rebellious life and do what no human could do. Be faithful to God, obey the law, and expand the garden. No human could do that. 
He also had to be human, or he had to be God, because if any human fails, they have to die according to the law. But no human has the ability to come back from death. So since all humans will fail and all humans will die under the judgment of law, all humans will be forever cast out of the presence of God with no hope of having a relationship with him. Therefore, God had to do what no human could do. Die and conquer the grave and death to come back. So he has to be God because only God can conquer death. Only God can conquer the grave. Only God can come back to life. So that the penalty of the covenant could be undone. But he also had to be human, because only humans have sinned. Therefore, the penalty for sin is death, and all humans will die because all humans sin, then you can't make an animal die for your sins. That doesn't count. Yes, animals died for people's sins in the First Testament, but the author of Hebrews makes the point, but that never worked completely because that's why they had to keep sacrificing an animal over and over and over and over and over again. If an animal could really die for your sins and represent you, then you would kill an animal and your sins would be atoned for and you would never die. Angels can't die for you because they didn't sin. And so a human has to die for the sins of the world. So therefore, he had to be human because only a human can die. But he also had to be a human because it was humans that God promised the blessings of the new covenant to. It was humans that he promised the blessings of the new covenant. So he had to be a God so that he could do what humans could not do. But he had to be a human so that he could die like humans were supposed to die. Then he had to be God so that he could conquer the grave, which humans couldn't do. And he had to be human so he could inherit the earth and rule over the garden like God promised humans that they would. And that's why he has to be the God-man. If he's only God, we're still in hell. If he's only human, we're still in hell. There is no atonement, eternal atonement, without that.